and they asked, what do you think is the average age of a founder of a startup, of a blockbuster startup on the day of founding, not when it becomes big? And the choices were 25, 35, 45, or 55. This is a very investment-savvy group of people. And they overwhelmingly guessed 25, followed by 35, followed by 45, followed by 55. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. If you're like me, you've got a lot of interests. Maybe you're passionate about science. I mean, you should be. If you weren't, you probably wouldn't be listening to me right now. But maybe you're also passionate about a sport. Maybe you play an instrument, paint, cook... Maybe your passionate interest in science is matched by a similarly passionate interest in history or literature or film. And maybe you're a little embarrassed that your interests are so wide-ranging. On its surface, it might seem like a good thing to have a lot of interests. I mean, it definitely makes you a more interesting person at parties. But as I may have heard too many times personally, jack-of-all-trades, master of none. Worse, people might have called you a dabbler a dilettante. Someone with so many interests, after all, cannot really be serious about any of them. And that's the crux of the matter, right? If you have so many interests, you can't possibly specialize in one. And everyone knows that specialists are better. They're smarter. They're more successful. Jacks of all trades, they aren't masters of anything. Ouch. But maybe there's hope for us dabblers yet. At least, there is, according to David Epstein. He's a writer at ProPublica and the author of the book The Sports Gene. Now he's got a new book out, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. David, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much uh, for having me. And, And I'd just like to point out in that wonderful introduction that I think it's culturally telling that we leave off the end of the phrase, jack of all trades, master of none, which is oftentimes better than master of one, but we've just ditched that part. (laughs) That is fascinating. I didn't know that. Where is that quote from? It's a saying I've always heard. I don't even know where that quote is exactly from. I cut this part of my book, so I never went about um, fact-checking that, although I did know, uh, but I can't remember exactly where that's from now. That's amazing. I'll probably think of it while we're we're talking. But that's, yeah, that's the full, just like I mentioned in the, uh, you know, the famous quote about never, 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 never give up. Um, by Winston Churchill. This part I did leave in the book. The end of it is, except to convictions of honor and good sense. But we leave that part out too. <laughs> well, I, I need to have that as a comeback uh, next time somebody says that. Okay, so it's jack of all trades, master of none. Oftentimes better than master of one. And I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, it was in some like British essay from like the 17th century or something like that but i can't remember exactly who the it author sounds was. very samuel peeps yeah <laughs> i don't i don't think that's it but good guess i'll definitely have to look now first we're going to be talking about specialists and generalists jacks of all trades and masters a lot in this interview so i wanted to start by kind of narrowing these terms down what exactly do you mean when you say specialist and what do you mean when you say generalist well, it's a little bit it's a little bit impossible to narrow them down in some ways. So as I go through the book, it, it becomes domain dependent. So like in research about technological innovation, researchers will define those terms based on things like 
the number of different technology classes as identified by the U.S. Patent Office that an individual has worked in in their career. A specialist might have only drilled into one and then the subclasses therein, whereas a generalist might end up working across dozens. So in that area of research, it's, it's very strictly defined based on um, the number of technology classes someone has worked in. In some of the comic book research I cite, it's defined based on the number of different genres that someone has worked in. So it, it really kind of depends on the you know, in, in medicine, of course, there are like terms for general practitioners, but I think it's very domain dependent and in some areas easier to uh, to quantify than than in others. But for, for the most part, like the entire discussion about how broad or specialized to be um, is, I think, an important one to everybody, but usually totally left up to intuition. And so my hope was sort of not to bring perfect answers, but to make those discussions more productive and interesting. But But the exact... The exact metric for a specialist or generalist is really varies by by domain. So as an example of that, for example, um, you talk a little bit about Einstein um, as a specialist, but he did have other interests. He was a noted violinist, for example. Yeah, I, I identified him as a as a hedgehog, basically. So this is in the it, well, I didn't identify him. I, I I took that classification from two academics who were writing about him, a hedgehog. This is in Chapter 10. I write about uh, work about how people develop good judgment about the future essentially and and it turns out that the hedgehogs from this parable hedgehogs know one big thing and foxes know many small things and the foxes turn out to be way way better than the hedgehogs and in two academics who are sort of studying uh thinkers characterized einstein as a hedgehog because he was not able to adapt his method of study after his big breakthroughs and sort of ignored breakthroughs in math that might have been useful to him and continued ahead with his same mode of study forever and was not sort of adaptable and people kind of argue that he was rigid and might have kind of wasted the last 30 years of his of his work. Um, but I have to say that is the single point on which I've gotten the most critical feedback. It's like two lines in the entire book, but identifying Einstein in that way. So so it's probably something I'm going to end up uh, addressing in the afterward, essentially, because people have picked up on that so much. Um, but also generalists can eventually specialize. And as another example, you talk about Federer, um, the tennis player, who yeah. started out as a generalist, but now no one would argue that he is not a tennis player. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a semantic issue there, right? It's like everyone specializes to one degree or another at some point or another. Like I was living in a tent in the Arctic, you know, being an ecology researcher when I decided to try to become a writer. But once I got to Sports Illustrated, so so first of all, once I got there as a temp fact checker, I was like six years behind the people I was fact checking for. And then it turned out that my very ordinary science skills were totally extraordinary in the context of a sports magazine. So I sort of zoomed from temp fact checker to the youngest senior writer at the place. But in the context of that sports magazine, they would have viewed me as being much more specialized than other people, even though I would have viewed myself as being broader. Whereas like, I'm not just writing about baseball. I'm writing about anything science related that, um, you know, is involved in sports. So, but, but the other journalist probably would have looked at me and called me specialized. So I, I think we all specialize to one degree or another at some point or another. It's more about how we get there. And most of the people in the book who end up with breadth in, you know, that they bring to whatever it is they end up doing didn't never set out to say, like, I'm going to be broad. I'm going to be a generalist. They usually set out to follow their interests or to improve their match quality. The, the term economists use to describe the degree of fit between an individual's interests and abilities and the work that they do. And that that required them to do some zigzagging along the way. And so they arrive at their ultimate destination, which they usually didn't know about until they get there, um, with these broad experiences and an array of skills. Okay, so specialist and generalist, we could say are kind of 
in the eye of the beholder. Unless you're looking at an area of research where it is quantitatively defined, and in some of them it is, but but then how could you take that classification? Like we certainly wouldn't say the number of different you know patent office technology classes that someone has worked across should be applied to like a generalist in the, the journalism field or something like that. So I so I think it's it's defined sometimes. There's just not a single definition that you can use um, to run across every domain. Nor nor should there be. I don't think that would make much sense. But they are also specialists versus generalists are seen as as versus. They're seen as opposites. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this isn't actually something that you really end up going into in the book. But it did make me wonder when I was reading it, why is there this dichotomy? Why do we oppose specialists and generalists as things that as as two groups of people that are in a way facing off against each other? Yeah, that's that's a great question and and sort of gets to sometimes when I would talk to some scientists who are viewed, you know, in the scheme of humanity, certainly appropriately viewed as specialists, they would view themselves as being like broader than everyone else they knew and everything else they do. Right. And so I love the quote by Santiago Ramon y Cajal, the Spanish Nobel laureate and father, so-called father of modern neuroscience, um, where he noticed that uh, the sort of innovators and and scientists who win Nobel Prizes, and and this is kind of backed up by research suggesting Nobel Prize winners are about 20 time, 22 times more likely to have aesthetic hobbies than normal scientists. Um, he said, to him who observes them from afar, it looks as though they are dissipating their energies when in fact they are channeling and strengthening them. And so s- scientists are specialized in the scheme of things, but what his observation was was that the ones who do the best are actually these incredibly broad people. Um, they have an area of specialty, but they also have these, this, this, what the psychologist Howard Gruber calls the network of enterprise where they have a lot going on. And I think our, I think our inclination to pretend that specialization and breadth are in zero sum competition is, you know, in, in part a correct outgrowth of intuition that you can't, you know, that, that just like multitasking is not necessarily the way to get good at something. Um, but uh, you know, and that you can't do like a million things. You have to at some point get good at something. But I think it's more about, I think it's more for like the same reasons that we classify the world into disciplines just for ease, right? Disciplines are a necessary evil for making the structures we use to study the world comprehensible. But the world is not broken into disciplines and somebody has to put it back together again at the end. So I think it's really just sort of a form of, uh, it's like a heuristic, that, that you might say is sort of mentally lazy or just or just easy for classification. We do tend to really enjoy putting things into buckets. <laughs> the reality is, you know, we, you know, divide up biology and physics, but life could not exist without physics. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I think sometimes that does some some damage to the area of study. So Arturo Casadevall, you know, is one of the most prominent immunologists in the world and a featured character in the last chapter says, like, we've had trouble for a long time understanding how the body responds to a paper cut because people studying B cells and, and people studying macrophages, you know, in, in which interact in a basic um, interaction in the immune system, uh, you know, and, and other, I mean, in specific for paper cuts, he was talking about basically like hematologists and other areas of work, but um, that you can't even get a grant to like study the whole system in an integrated manner. Because it'll just go, your grant will proposal will go to people who are studying like one or the other part of the system. And so all these basic things, 
we don't get a good understanding of until someone decides to become interdisciplinary. And this is interesting because, you know, like it or not, there is this idea that specialists and generalists are kind of in opposition to each other. And there's also something of a cultural meme that generalists are less focused, which, you know, they're generalists, so I guess they are, and that less focus is bad. Why is that seen as bad? I think it's more difficult to conceive, right? I think we have like this very entrenched sort of um, glorification of putting your head down and working on something and like forging straight ahead, basically. And I don't think, I think that made a lot of sense for an industrial economy uh, where people were more often doing the same things over and over again. I think it makes a lot less sense in a, in a knowledge economy. But, you know, I, I think it's, it makes sense. It's intuitive, right? I think it's the same reason that, that one of the reasons that the 10,000 hour rule is so appealing is it doesn't require a lot of thought. It's like pick your thing and just forge straight ahead. It doesn't require you to be a human being who's growing and learning about yourself and sometimes changing direction. So I think, I think it's an easy prescription and it seems like it goes along with, with good work ethic and it's, it's more certain, right? Like, if, if you were just supposed to forge straight ahead, like nobody would become entrepreneurs because by definition they have to start something new and we glorify entrepreneurs, but we don't really talk about how that they by necessity have to deviate from just following the straight and narrow path and keeping their head down. And so I think we're sort of, uh, have some cognitive dissonance about it, but, but I think, I think what people are usually trying to say is like work hard. Um, and it gets wrapped up into this, all this other stuff. It's very interesting that, you know, the prescription seems easy, but it's a prescription for really hard work yeah. in one very specific domain. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm all for hard work that way. Like I, I, I totally think that like nobody's going to outwork me in like whatever, you know, domain I happen to be working in at the time, but I changed, I changed those things. I changed my projects. I changed my domains. And I don't think there's, and, and I think that's been a source of power, right? Of like taking knowledge that's sort of ordinary in one area and moving it somewhere else where it's extraordinary. There's all these these are all these like intellectual arbitrage opportunities that you miss if you're just just forging straight ahead. So so I don't equate working hard with necessarily just being focused, right? And I think there's there's a difference between so in, in one of some of the studies of of inventors that I looked at, they they don't only classify uh, generalists and specialists; they also look at dilettantes, basically people who didn't work, go that deeply in a technology class and didn't accumulate a lot of breadth of technology classes and those people don't do well. And so I think it's important to differentiate just not being that interested in anything with being the kind of generalist who's interested in many things. And one of your examples of this kind of, I guess you could say cultural idea against generalization and towards specialization is the issues associated with changing careers, which Mm -hmm. is something that is seen as terrifying and dangerous. Um, you know, you, you will be terribly behind. You will yeah. never catch up. Is, is changing careers in, in the research dangerous? Um, not really. I think there are, I, I want to answer this one a couple of ways. It does cause a setback. That's, that's for sure. But when people change on the whole, of course, there's a lot of individual variability, but people are usually changing in response to match quality information. Again, that's the degree of fit between one's abilities and their proclivities and the work that they do. And match quality turns out to be incredibly important for someone's performance, their rate of growth, 
uh, their resilience. So as one of the researchers I, I quote in the book says, when you get fit, it'll look like grit, meaning that if you get someone in a work that's has high match quality for them, um, they will display these characteristics of work ethic more so even if they didn't before. And usually when people change, they are, they are changing in response to that sort of information. So let me go through a couple of studies here. One is uh, Steve Levitt, the so-called, you know, LinkedIn, I'm sorry, the so-called Freakonomics economist, um, did a study where he, he leveraged his very large following to have people flip a digital coin to make life decisions on his website. And the most common question was if people asking if they should change jobs. And he goes through a detailed analysis, shows there was a causal effect of the coin flip on what people decided to do. And there was a causal effect of that on their happiness when later down the road. So if people who were thinking about changing jobs, the moral was basically they should and they they end up happier. Um, in uh, LinkedIn did some research. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention like four different studies that came to mind when you said this and just interrupt me if you, if you want no, to. No, the more studies, um, the better. Go. <laughs> okay. So LinkedIn recently did some research on a half million um Members, They have these incredible databases. They can do really interesting stuff. And the chief economist's main recommendation that came out of this research, the research was to see who would go on to become an executive in the future, basically. Well, no, exactly, not basically. Um, And the chief economist's main recommendation was that people who want to become executives should work across a large number of job functions because the most important predictor turned out to be the number or it was actually second most important predictor. The most important was having gone to like a top five MBA program, but that's probably just a selection effect anyway. And it's not like useful to recommend people that they should do that. Um, the next best predictor was the number of different job functions that an individual had worked across. So that was his main recommendation that came out of the work was work across more job functions. So when people were sort of matched for, and he, he looked at, they put together like different hypothetical um, and sometimes real examples of people's work history and profiles and someone who had worked at say, uh, who had a significant amount of experience had worked at three different job functions and four different companies and two different industries was about half as likely to become an executive as someone who had worked at five different job functions in six different companies. And so working at more different places and in more different functions had a massive effect on someone's likelihood of becoming an executive. Okay, but we're still, I'm sure we're not about to start giving people the advice, except for the chief economist at LinkedIn, to go ahead and change companies and change job functions. But even though that turns out to be what's, what worked. Okay, number third prong here. When I was at um, uh, a Motley Fool event recently, if you don't know the Motley Fool, it's like an investment website and community, and they took something from the introduction of range to poll the audience before I went up. And they asked, what do you think is the average age of a founder of a startup, of a blockbuster startup on the day of founding, not when it becomes big. And the choices were 25, 35, 45, or 55. This is a very investment savvy group of people. And they overwhelmingly guessed 25, followed by 35, followed by 45, followed by 55. The answer is 45 and a half, according to research by MIT, Northwestern, and the Census Bureau. But we don't hear that story. Right. We only hear the Mark Zuckerberg, young people are just smarter kind of thing that he said when he was 22. Um, but the fact is, actually, people usually have to go through a period of learning and zigzagging before they decide to try to create their own thing, which is 
usually far riskier than just taking another job. Okay, so that's another win for people who are changing late early on in their career. So here, fourth prong. Um, if you look at higher ed, so an, an economist whose work I wrote about saw a natural experiment in the higher ed systems of England and Scotland where the systems were very similar in the period he was studying. The difference was specialization timing. The English students had to specialize in their mid-teen years because they had to apply to specific programs. The Scottish students could continue sampling even through the end of university if they wanted. And so he said, who wins this trade-off, early or late specializers? And it turned out that the early specializers do jump out to an income lead. Not a big surprise because they have more domain-specific skills. But the late specializers, because they get to sample, First of all, they, they are much more likely to end up studying something that they hadn't heard of by the time they entered the university, and they pick better fits for themselves. Their growth rates are higher. So six years out, they fly past the early specializers, and meanwhile, the early specializers start quitting their career tracks in much higher numbers, even though they have much more disincentive from doing so because they were made to pick so early that they more often chose poorly. Um but even then, they then have higher growth rates because they are changing in response to match quality information. So there is really uh, no research that I'm aware of. All, all of the research that I'm aware of shows a short-term deficit for changing and a long-term benefit. And, and I, I don't think I've seen any that shows the opposite. I guess my question with all of these studies, you know, it, it's really compelling. But, you know, a lot of these people are, you know, they're the people who switch careers and you know do so successfully is is there an issue of kind of self-selection in these data pools because you don't see the people who thought about switching careers and didn't um you do see the people who thought about switching careers and didn't in the linkedin study you do have a random selection of a half million people in the linkedin study and in the england versus scotland study you do have a random selection of students so I would argue that most of these actually are random selections of people in the in the freakonomic study Everyone was considering changing their job, so that was a pre-selection criteria. Some people decide to follow the coin flip, and some people decide not to follow the coin flip. But again, there's analysis that shows there is a causal effect of, of the coin flip. Um, so except for the self-selection of people who are already considering changing their jobs, I, I don't think there was a bias selection there, and I don't think there was a bias selection in the, in the higher ed study, and I don't think there was a bias selection in the LinkedIn study uh, either. Because you can actually compare people who have extremely similar career paths, except for the number of different jobs they take. Hmm. And you open your book with one awesome example of specialization versus generalization. And it's one that people probably think about first when they think about this. And it's sports. <laughs> and yeah. in sports, there's this really strong push to specialize early. Yeah. The example you talk about here is Tiger Woods, who was holding a golf club basically as soon as he could walk. But you have an alternate example of Federer. And and I was wondering if you could kind of talk about his kind of winding path. And first of all, for the non-sports ball people out there, Federer plays tennis. He's won 20 Grand Slam titles. He's pretty good at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tiger Woods pretty good also. Yes. Um, although has not sustained that for the length of time that Roger Federer has. But anyway, so so Tiger Woods, like even if you don't Right. Even if you don't know the details of, story, of his story, a lot of people have probably at least absorbed the gist of it through one way or another because it's, I would argue, the most powerful 
modern development narrative. You know, it's like at the core of a half dozen bestsellers that say, follow what Tiger Woods did for whatever you want to do. It's basically his father gave him a, a, a club when he was seven months old, not trying to turn him into a golfer, just giving it to him as a toy. But he was very physically precocious. By 10 months, he's imitating a swing. By two years, you can go on YouTube, see him showing off his, his swing in front of Bob Hope. Um, at three, his father starts media training him. Um, he's famous as a teenager. Fast forward to age 21, he's the greatest golfer in the world. And we know that story. Or, or certainly people who have any familiarity with sports ball know that story. Um, and Roger Federer is certainly as famous as an adult – but we don't hear his development story, which is that he played – he dabbled in several different sports, usually in an unstructured manner. His mother was a tennis coach but refused to coach him because he wouldn't return balls normally. Um, he – when he got good enough to get – his coaches wanted to bump him up to play against older boys. He declined because he just wanted to talk about pro wrestling with his friends after practice. So at this point, he's a young guy. He's, he's, he's dabbled in basketball, handball, uh, swimming, diving, wrestling – uh, skiing, badminton, soccer, rugby, I don't know, a few others. I can't remember them all off the top of my head, but it was about a dozen. And it, he he really didn't put all, whereas Tiger Woods was saying, I'm going to be the next Jack Nicholas, another great golfer. Um, when he was four years old, Roger was not like that. He, in fact, when he got good enough to warrant an interview from a local newspaper, um, the reporter asked him if he ever became a pro tennis player, what would he buy with his first hypothetical paycheck? And Roger says a Mercedes. And his mother, who doesn't want him putting his emphasis on sports, is appalled by this and asked the reporter if she can hear the interview tape. And the reporter obliges. And it turns out that Roger said mere CDs in Swiss German. He just wanted more CDs, not a Mercedes. And his mother's fine with that. So everything's OK. And Roger ultimately ends up specializing in tennis um, several years later than most of his peers who, who are sort of at his ability level. Uh, and my question was, which of these very different models, the Roger model or the Tiger model, is actually representative of the norm, the one that we hear about all the time or the one that uh, we've never heard of is, is the norm? And it turns out that it's absolutely the Roger model. And when you say the norm, do you mean the norm for sports or the norm for, for everything? Well, the norm for sports, that's where I started. So when, when scientists track athletes who go on to become elite, they find they have what's called a in, – in most sports, they find they have what's called a sampling period where they play this wide variety of sports and they, they gain these broad general skills. They learn about their interests and their abilities and they – systematically delay specializing until later than peers who plateau at lower levels. And that, that sort of became the analogy. The reason I started range with that is it, it sort of became an analogy where I wanted to say, well, let me go in all these other domains and see if the Roger or the tiger path is more ubiquitous. And actually my book proposal was titled, titled Roger versus tiger because I was planning on alternating chapters, um, with, you know, it's better to generalize first here and better to specialize here. But so many of the areas uh, that I think are, are resonate with modern work, um, that aren't like chess and golf where they're just based on repetitive patterns or repetitive movements went in the Roger direction. So I decided to just tip the entire book in that direction. And sports are kind of the poster child for early specialization, um, yeah. in terms of fields. It's just, it's something that, you know, even though you found that 
generalization actually turned out to be kind of more often the recipe for success, there's still this idea that you should specialize early. Um, mm. But before sports, I loved this, there was chess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is in its way its own very cerebral sport. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and by the way, I should say, I, there, there's there's strange dearth of science on golf, given how popular a sport it is globally. But um, I can believe that early specialization does work in golf, uh, as opposed to some of the other sports. We don't really know, but I can definitely believe it because of the qualities of golf. And maybe I'll sort of explain that with chess here. So the one of the opening stories in the book is about this um, uh, a guy named Laszlo Polgar who decides to raise his daughters to be geniuses in something and by doing that will show that any healthy kid can be raised to be a genius in anything and he, he picks chess at the time it's like a cold war proxy it's it's a big big deal and he trains his daughters from a very early age um in chess by the way i should mention they were very very bright and ended up like way ahead of other you know their peers in like math and other things too so it turned out that they were not just good at one thing <laughs> um and they were actually really good at table tennis and all this stuff. But anyway, he's he's very focused on chess. And he turns his daughters into international chess players. Two of them become grandmasters. One becomes one level down from that. Uh, and so it's sort of a success in that sense. And in chess, you actually – you definitely have to specialize early in chess if you want to be really good. In fact – so chess is, is based – the grandmaster's advantage in chess is pattern recognition. So it's, it's based on seeing patterns they've seen before and, and sort of intuitively knowing what to do in response to those patterns. And so the more patterns you know, uh, the better off you are. And so if you haven't started studying patterns by the age of 12, your chances of reaching international master status, which is one level down from grandmaster, drops from about 1 in 4 to about 1 in 55. And the, there's been sort of a, uh, explosion of very young grandmasters in recent years. And that's entirely because the availability of computer chess allows people to study an enormous number of patterns when they're really young. So you have to do that. This chess is what's called, what the psychologist Robin Hogarth calls a kind learning environment. It's based on very defined rules. People take turns. Um, the, it's based on pattern recognition. You have a huge store of previous data to see what happens, and you get feedback very quickly and totally accurately whenever you do something. And in those kinds of environments, of which golf is one, specialized practice works like crazy. It's also why in chess um, it's so easy to automate because computers are even better at pattern recognition than we are. So I think the problem is not that there have been a whole bunch of bestsellers preaching you know, talking about how powerful these early specialization in chess and golf stories are, it's that they've extrapolated that to everything else in the world. And those are horrible models of most other things that people want to do. So that's sort of the line I tried to draw. And we will get back to the kind and the wicked world in a moment. But first, I just wanted to ask, because I was reading this incredible anecdote that you wrote about Polgar and his his three daughters, they all became incredible chess players. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering, did you, in your research, did you find anything about how they felt about it? Like, how did his daughters feel knowing they were the subjects of their dad's grand experiment to create baby geniuses? Yeah, you know, I think, well, I talked to Susan Polgar uh, and for quite a while and, and read about her. And, and I actually think they were, I think they ended up being pretty well adjusted. I would say only two of them ended up being incredible chess players. Uh, the other one ended up being quite good. Um, and I think they, I think they liked it. And I think that had a lot to do with 
first of all, the fact that they were not as narrow overall as again they they spent they became competitive table tennis players they um, were ahead in math and they were interested in a lot of things and Sophia who was the one who didn't get quite as good when she decided she didn't really want to focus on chess anymore she just didn't and nobody forced her to stay so I think they had some agency in that Um, and I think uh, their father tried to do it in a way that that they would enjoy it and for Susan, she's she's now a chess coach, and that's still a big part of her life. And and to me, they seem to have grown up um, quite well adjusted. And I think so. Sophia's example shows that if they wanted to leave chess or put less emphasis on it, they were certainly allowed. And I think that's an important uh, part of it. And of course, we don't hear the stories of, of people who try to do things like this, and it doesn't work out, right? And I think it's it's that's probably both a function of the people involved in it in the first place and also how rigid it is and, and how little room there is to take a break or, or leave if you really want to. Yeah. But as you were mentioning, you know, based in part on the work of Polgar, who published about his daughters, um, mm-hmm. but also on the successful specialists that people see around them, many parents figure, hey, specialize their kids early, get them training on an instrument or programming or sports, yeah. you know, the earlier, the better. Um, but this is where we get into the fact that sports and chess are what you call kind environments and the world can be wicked. Can you talk about, can you go a little further into what a kind environment is and what a wicked environment is and what that yeah. means for specialization? Yeah. And I would say some of sports, sports are, this is a spectrum from kind to wicked and some sports are much more kind than others, I would say, like with golf at the far end. But the, so the, and these are terms coined by psychologist Robin Hogarth and the, the kind learning environment to, to reiterate is basically one where all the information is clear. Next steps are clear. Work next year will look like work last year. There's a lot of repetitive patterns and challenges. Rules are totally clear and articulated. Feedback is either automatic or or easily available and accurate. On the other end, the wicked learning environment, you may there may not be rules, or if there are, you may not be told what they are. You can't count on work next year looking like work last year, or maybe even tomorrow looking like yesterday. Patterns don't simply repeat, and the next steps may not be clear. Uh, and you may or may not get feedback. Sometimes it may be delayed, and sometimes it may be inaccurate. And in those instances, what a lot of research, you know, partly famously Daniel Kahneman's research, which came from the research of a guy named Paul Meal, who in the 1950s was showing, kind of rocked the psychology world with this book where he gathered up um, sort of all the research that had been done on on expert judgment and found that in most areas, experts got more confident, but not better with with narrow experience, which is kind of a dangerous combination. And Kahneman who I would guess a lot of listeners of this podcast know that he's the Nobel laureate who won the Nobel Prize for illuminating cognitive bias and wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, he and he researched, he, he had some of these similar findings where people don't get better with experience in their judgment. And one of his colleagues, another psychologist named Gary Klein, had the opposite finding where he found people do get better um, with experience. And they wrote this extraordinary paper. They came together for what they called an adversarial collaboration, basically to co-author a paper saying, why are we both studying how people change from experience or don't and getting such different results? And what they determined was that Gary Klein was basically studying people in kind learning environments where they face repeated challenges and Kahneman was not. And that was the differentiator between whether people 
got better automatically from just having experience or not. Well, and this kind of leads into something that we were talking a little bit about earlier, the idea that kind of specialization kind of benefits kind and env- from kind environments, kind mm-hmm. environments kind of favor specialization. Mm-hmm. Um, and this actually kind of makes me think about the fact that specialization kind of came into vogue air quotes around the time of the industrial revolution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, does, does the whole kind of concept of the 20th century and the way industrialization has developed, is that kind of more of a kind environment and is the knowledge economy that is kind of taking over in the 21st century kind of making the world more wicked? I think absolutely. Um, and I think, so I think specialization made a ton of sense when most jobs were part of the industrial economy because in that economy, most people work did usually look similar over a period of time. Challenges were repetitive and that meant that there were huge barriers to lateral mobility because experience with a certain task was so critical that, that it, and it, it made sense just to kind of use people internally rather than going outside and bringing new people in. But but that obviously changed to the point where you know, a lot of people don't work in areas where the work is unchanging and, and repetitive, you know, and they can count on repetitive challenges. And a lot of our, you know, our education system was, came out of industrialization and Taylorism, this sort of science of management efficiency, right? That, and, and the education system worked really well for preparing people with certain basic uh, standardized skills for the industrial economy. And actually our education system has definitely gotten better. So there's no question that um, students today have a better mastery of basic skills than their parents did. The problem is the challenge has gotten so much more difficult. Right? The modern work world, if you really want to be be able to move with it and to be successful and have some agency, um, you have to be able to engage in knowledge creation and, and transfer of, of knowledge, which is solving using what you know to solve problems that aren't exactly the same thing that you faced yesterday. And so I think there has been this change. I think that shows up in sort of interesting ways, like to go to some of the the tech innovation research when up to about the late 1980s the most important patents were um being authored by specialists people who had spent most of their career working in like one or two technology classes and then with the revolution in um, communication technology suddenly all this information is very rapidly disseminated and very widely available and suddenly it becomes a lot easier to be broader than a specialist and starting then you start to see the biggest contributions coming from these people who work across a large number of technology domains where they can merge information and all these things so so that sort of happens at the early in the explosion of the knowledge economy and you see other trends that i sort of document in the book where the highest potential people identified as the highest potential officers in the army used to stay for you know if they went to the u.s military academy at west point they used to tend to stay for 20 years or more and become the leadership of the army and then starting in about 1990 that totally changes and suddenly the people identified as the highest potential are the most likely to drop out of the army as soon as they can because they do have these knowledge creation skills and and creative problem solving and they have very little autonomy over finding match quality in the army but now the economy allows a ton of lateral mobility where you can transfer skills and knowledge. And so they start leaving to look for that outside. So with the change from the industrial economy to the knowledge economy, there are these 
these sort of interesting trends that that sort of show some of the side effects of it. And one of the interesting things about your book is that it I'm not going to say it calls into question, but it certainly offers a different angle on the well-known idea of the 10,000 hour rule. And what that is, is popularized by Malcolm Gladwell. It's the idea that to master anything, you need to put in 10,000 hours of hard, deliberate practice. And this book is not what I would call anti 10,000 hours. How is it a different perspective on the 10,000 hour rule? My first book was kind of anti 10,000 hours. Um, and as Gladwell and I were on a panel recently and he introduced me and said, this is David who devoted several pages of his first book to criticizing my work, <laughs> um, which is true. Uh, where to even start with this? Let, let me start with, first of all, we were invited back to that same, you know, we, so we were invited back to the first place we ever had a debate. And uh, this time around, and this is both of these things are on YouTube. The first one I would call debate. The second one I would just call a conversation because toward the end, he says, I now believe I've conflated two ideas. The idea that a lot of practice is important to become good at something, which is true, with the idea that in order to become good at X thing, you should do X and only X from as early as possible, which I now believe is false. So he and I are now on the same page. Wow. Um, and, and yeah, and, and it's documented on video. Um, <laughs> I'm going to so, find that video and link it in the show notes. Okay. And, and I think, the, uh, it's hard for me to know where to start in the 10,000 hour rule because the, the science underlying it was so shoddy in the first place that, you know, it was, it was based on a study of 30 violinists who were so highly pre-screened. They were already in a world famous music academy, which is a massive, what scientists, statisticians would call restriction of range. Essentially, they've been so highly pre-selected already. And to, to put that in perspective, in my first book, I did some data analysis about height and the you know, and the American population and the NBA. And as it'll be no surprise, I think, even to people who don't follow sports at all, to learn that there's a high positive correlation between the height of an American male and the points that they will score in the NBA. But if you restrict your subject range to only people who are already in the NBA, then that correlation becomes negative. And so if you're a scientist studying what caused basketball skill and didn't acknowledge the restriction of range, you would give parents the advice to have short children for them to score points as professional basketball players, which is obviously nonsensical, but a, a serious limitation of a huge amount of science. So the first thing is the, the study of only 30 people had a massive restriction of range. Secondly, 10,000 hours was an average of individual differences. And when I, when I talked to the psychologist who did this work and asked, well, what was the variance around that 10,000 hours? Because for some reason I can't understand, there is no measure of variance included in the paper, right? When I was training to become a geologist, we couldn't publish papers with no measures of variance. So I'm not really sure why that's acceptable sometimes. I admit I am shocked that there was no measure of variance. That, that yeah, is, none. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, so I asked him, right? And he said, well... That doesn't, uh, that's not really relevant because the subjects, this was all retrospective recall of practice hours and the subjects were not consistent in their multiple accounts. Now, like, well, okay, well, we all struggle with getting good data. That doesn't mean we don't include measures of variance. So what was it? He said, well, this will be a more relevant question when we have video diaries where we can really track what people did and be sure about it. He said, all right. Was it more or less than 500 hours? He said, definitely more than 500 hours. Okay. So some people didn't get 10,000 hours, some people went over, some people were way under, and it was just an average of individual differences. And if you look at things like, uh, and, and by the way, he wrote a book, 
that this scientist. And in the book, he ha- there's a quick little mention where he says, by the way, these ideas apply to domains that are well characterized, where we know the principles of success, and where there's a coach who can tell you everything that you're doing wrong, which to me is like the loophole that swallows the book, basically, um, because that's a very small number of domains. And, you know, he, it's just, so, so this, it's to become an international master in chess, we talked about chess a little, it takes 11,053 hours on average to become an international master. So the 10,000 hour rule would be low. What's the variance on that one? Is there variance on that one? Yeah. So some people, I'll give you the range. So some people have made it at 3,000 hours and some people are still being tracked in a study at 25,000 hours and they still haven't made it. So we don't really know, and maybe they won't. So we don't really know what the what the ultimate range is, but that's much more indicative of the pattern of study in human skill acquisition, where it's actually a really good idea to figure out, to find match quality, like where you're a faster learner, because if you take the 10,000 hours to mean you should just pick the first thing that comes, you know, comes across uh, your table and, and dive into it with your 10,000 hours, that's not really actually what any of this science says is like the best way to approach it. So that's, that's part of my problem with the 10,000 hours. And another part is just that, uh, I think what Gladwell articulated is that, that it, that it conflates this idea that in order to become good at something, you should do only that thing. And that's, that's kind of one of the problems with it that I expand upon in range. And, in range, you have some lovely historical examples about the importance of range. Um, and there was one in particular that I'd never heard of. And I was really shocked that I'd never heard of this because I am a musician. Um, but I had never heard about the violin virtuosos of Venice. I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could talk about these incredible women. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of and nobody asked me about this. I don't know why, because it's one of my favorite stories. It was um, amazing. <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 I sort of think typical in a lot of history, which is first of all, you know, they didn't have families most of them because they were orphans and they were women. And every everyone's heard of Vivaldi, right? Like everyone, you know, Four Seasons might be like the currently most popular piece of classical music. People don't even know they've heard it, but they have. And yet, the people who you know, the women who helped him, who who were his creative canvas for that piece, like nobody knows about them. So anyway, the story is. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself and, and getting to the end, but I think it's. I think there's a lot of his bias in the way historians have approached some of this stuff, which is why their their stories are not prominent. But um, so this story is about 17th and 18th century uh, Venice, where Venice had a very vibrant sex industry, and it, it led to a social problem where um, a lot of the uh, daughters, particularly of sex workers, would be dropped in canal in the canals. And in order to alleviate that problem, uh, Venice started some extremely progressive social welfare organizations called ospedali or hospitals, but they weren't actually hospitals. So one of these, these ospedali was, uh, it was sort of like it had a thing like when you go to the airport and you, you put your bag in the, the size check thing to see if you can carry it on. It had that as a notch in the wall, but it was for babies. And if your baby could fit in that, that sort of box, um, called a scafetta, then the institution would, would raise her, usually a her, no questions asked. And how, how do, how big was the box? A small, I mean, the, the babies were very small, like usually like newborns. Um, I'm saying like, you know, you keep it two months, like, oh no, no. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who knows if they would have, would have taken them anyway, but, 
um, that that was one of the requirements. They fit in the scafetta. And I think the scafetta changed a little bit over time. Like I think you can think of it as like, you know, sort of a like a two foot long box. That's what the pictures look like. Sometimes they had a wooden box in it. But anyway, point being, so so the institutions wanted to raise these girls to be sort of self-sufficient. Most of them never left these institutions. But even within the institution, it became sort of a self-sustaining community. So some of them became like pharmacists for the people who lived there. Some of them learned how to launder silk or or make ship sales so that they could sell those to help support the institution. And as part of um, you know, as, as part of that sort of growth, they would try to teach the girls lots of different skills and people, some people started donating instruments to the institutions. And so the girls would be, some of the girls would be encouraged to learn all of them, like learn how to play as many of the instruments that would come in as possible. Some of these instruments, we don't even actually know what they are anymore. So they're picture, you know, their names sometimes, but no pictures. So we have to imply sometimes there are pictures, but no names. Um, and the girls started holding concerts. And pretty soon, the sort of governors of these institutions realized that the donations were coming in in much greater volume and that it was coming from people who showed up to see these these girls and sometimes women play music. And so then they started sort of focusing on this a little more and getting more instruments and encouraging the girls to play more. And they ended up becoming so good at switching instruments, learning new instruments, and, and just playing generally – that composers in Venice, and Venice was like ground zero of uh, total musical transformation at the time for the Baroque period, and that composers started sort of falling all over themselves to try to compose for them because they gave them this musical laboratory that they couldn't find anywhere else in the world because uh, the girls and, and women could play so many different instruments and could play so well. So so Antonio Vivaldi was one of the composers who kind of won the right to do exclusive composing for this group of girls called the Filia del Coro. So it means like daughters of the choir. And you know most of his work started there. And these women became the most famous musicians in the world. And because they weren't supposed to perform outside of the institutions really – People came to them. So kings came to see them. You know, Rousseau came to see them. Um, uh, Casanova, um, Nietzsche, like all these, you know, they, they dominated music in a place where music was more important than music had ever probably been anywhere. They dominated it for a century until Napoleon uh, invaded Venice. And, and one of the reasons also why maybe they were a little lost to history is that Napoleon's troops threw a lot of their records out the window. But but there's still a lot left. But I just thought that was a wonderful story about these these girls and young women who became the greatest musicians in the world. You know, Vivaldi essentially revolutionized the the concerto, so the use of the virtuous uh, virtuoso soloist, and the philia were the people that he was using to do that. So they sort of launched an era of virtuoso soloists. Um, and their training plan was essentially to learn as many instruments as they as they possibly could early on. Right. And and they had what they had was range. They played all of these instruments. And, and you know, that might be the violin, the viola, the cello, but they also played, you know, the harpsichord <laughs> or you know things that were not necessarily like two instruments that transpose easily. Right. But it also made me wonder, you talk a lot about range how how much range is really beneficial? Because, for example, these women played all of these instruments, 
but they were all instruments or they sang, mm-hmm. but they didn't study Greek rhetoric. And similarly with sports, you know, you have Federer was into wrestling and soccer and basketball, but, you know, he wasn't doing debate. (laughs) So how much of a range are we talking about when we talk about the benefits of range? I think it depends on what you're doing. A lot of the philia did. Well, actually, all of the philia had, except for a short period where they became so famous that some of them essentially became only full time professional musicians. They did have other jobs. They had to learn other jobs. Um, and at the time they also learned some arithmetic and reading, which was very, very rare for girls, especially orphans at that time. So I would say in the scheme of things, they had a lot of range. Did that contribute more to their music? I have no idea, but I think it, it contributed to the fact that one, a lot of them, you know, you don't usually earmark orphans of, of sex workers for, uh, necessarily a great future because they start off with a lot of disadvantages, but a lot of these women ended up leading really productive lives. And a lot of them actually chose to stay in the institution for their whole life because that's that's where they felt comfortable and they'd had good lives there. So so I think that was helpful. But ultimately, the idea is sort of how how disparate should your interests be, I think right. is, is part of yeah. the question. And I I don't really know how to answer that. No, I think I think again the way to approach it is not to say like my interests should be so disparate that they should be like flying and scuba diving because that covers the air and the water. Um, and also, uh, you know, reading only experimental fiction and only like the most dry academic nonfiction or something. I don't, I don't know how to like pick the poles of, of range, but so, so for me, the way to go about it is very much in the vein of, um, the Dark Horse project that I write about in the work of Herminia Ibarra, which both are, again, about how people find good fits for themselves in the work world. And the, the trend among those people seems to be, instead of saying, like, here's my long-term goal, I'm just going to work straight at it, 10,000 hours style, is to say, here's who I am right now, here are my, my skills and interests, and here are the options in front of me, and I'm going to try this one, and then maybe a year from now I'll change because I will have learned something about myself. And by just doing that over and over, they end up, uh, being broad. And if they find a great fit, you know, early, if they get lucky and that happens, like, great, go ahead, do it. But that's not typically the case. And so I think it's that that sort of short-term planning iteration approach that helps people get to a useful level of, of diversity. And I think for, for me, who has absolutely no idea what I'm going to do next, that's an approach I expect to take for my whole life. And that has just led me to these very disparate projects and in some cases, whole scale career changes. So, so I don't know how to kind of quantify exactly, um, the, like how disparate someone should be. And at the other end, you know, a lot of the modern world, and we talked a little bit about this with, you know, the industrialization, um, effect, a lot of the modern world really is focused on specializing and still focused on specializing and often specializing very quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the fields that's especially prone to this is academia. You mm-hmm. know, first there were biologists and geologists and physicists, and now there are neuropsychopharmacologists and uh, paleohydrogeologists and theoretical quantum astrophysicists. Mm-hmm. And I think I just made that last one up, actually. <laughs> um, Maybe. Who knows? There'll probably be one tomorrow. <laughs> is academia especially prone to kind of over-specialization or hyper-specialization? I think it is. And I'll, I'll give sort of from some of my experience from when I you know, started in grad school, though I, I didn't I didn't go all the way to PhD, but um, I checked out at master's. And 
right away, as soon as I got into grad school, I was encouraged to try to identify some very narrow question that nobody else was working on and just make it mine and go as deep into it as I possibly could. And, and the fact was the easiest way to find something like that was to find something that nobody else cared about because it probably wasn't that important or interesting. Um, and so I think there, there is a pressure to do that. And if I wanted to get what I thought would have been the quickest track to, you know, tenure way down the line, obviously looking way ahead, it would be to pick off something that I thought wasn't interesting enough for people, for other people to be competing on it basically. Um, and I've been thinking about this in, in the humanities too lately. Cause I was reading this book called the bottom billion by an Oxford economist named Paul Collier. And it, it's about why, even as the world economy has exploded and our living standards in, in a lot of the world are way higher than they've ever been, a billion people have been like basically totally left behind. And one of the things he talks about uh, early on in the book is he says the reason, you know, reason we've been getting this, we haven't made much progress is because historians, academic historians are so um, specialized that they all study like one country or one, even one event in one country, and then use that to extrapolate out to all these other countries where it clearly isn't appropriate because there isn't like a single causal system that causes different problems uh, and, and you know, instability in all these different countries. And so you really have to be a lot broader to, to understand how this works. And, and, and that kind of resonates with me and was very similar to, I just read Jill Lepore, uh, her short book, which I highly recommend, um, called This America. Uh, and here again, she sort of very lightly and politely chastises her colleagues, historians, for going into these increasingly narrow rabbit holes and ignoring a more holistic history of America. And her feeling is that that the vacuum that they left behind has has allowed basically demagoguery to fill it and and define the nation. And so, so I do think that's more. This is an academic problem, but in the in the figurative sense of the word, I think it's more than an academic problem because it has real consequences for how we approach problem solving, um, for how we think of our history. Uh, and in in chapter ten of Range, it looks at people who make good predictions about the future, and it turns out that a lot of the most decorated academics not only are are very ba- are the worst at making predictions about geopolitical trends, but get worse as they accumulate more credentials and experience, and that is a real perverse situation i think and i understand why we do this in academia but i don't think i I think it becomes i think it becomes counterproductive i think there are areas like medicine where specialization has been both inevitable and beneficial but also with some perverse side effects um in other areas i think the sort of fetishization of specialization is just this sort of cultural artifact of like what academics think they should do or that that's what it felt like to me I, I don't know why i was encouraged to bite off something nobody else was interested in instead of biting off something that seemed important yeah and one of the things i think a lot of people will get out of this book is not necessarily the importance of specialization to academia though certainly that was actually something that i picked out but i think a lot of people are going to be very focused on the part of this book where we talk about where you talk about how we teach children uh, because there's a section in the book that talks about making connections versus using procedures. And I wonder if you could define those terms, because I found this this section especially fascinating. 
I, I will. I want to say one more thing about academia that just came to mind while you were saying that, and, and then I'll go back to that, which is I cut a little part of the book where um, I, I relayed this instance where uh, – so Simon Shama, the great historian, wrote a book that you know won prestigious award about the transatlantic slave trade that's an amazing book and won prestigious awards and ended up as like a BBC show, I think it was. You know, ends up educating an enormous number of people about the transatlantic slave trade. And there was this instance where another a fellow academic at – a conference stood up, took the book and, and pounded on the cover and said, how could he write this? He's an expert in 17th century Holland or whatever it is that he's an expert in, right? So here you have the actual final product about the transatlantic slave trade that's had a huge impact on public understanding. And and his colleague isn't saying it's not a good work. It's not a worthy work. He's saying like, how could he decide to do this? That's not his area of specialty. I, I think how that's How dare like, you go outside your hyper-specialization? Right. So <laughs> I think when you've gotten to that area where if specialization is necessary in some areas, that's that's fine and that's understandable. And and I think, you know, we need specialists. Um, I think when it becomes like a a virtue for its own sake, that I think is nonsensical. Um, but okay, back to back to you, you mentioned using procedures and making connections, knowledge. Yes, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what exactly those two things are, the making connections as opposed to using procedures, and what this has to do with range. Yeah, so those terms come from people who study math learning, cognitive psychologists who study math learning. And using procedures essentially means learning how to execute algorithms, more or less, or shortcuts, or just how to, you know, how to how to work the steps through a problem. Making connections knowledge is the kind of knowledge that builds uh a conceptual framework about the structure of a type of problem so that when you're solving it, instead of executing an algorithm, you're attempting to identify the structure of the problem and match a strategy to it. And uh, so this making connections knowledge is more about having these these broader, more flexible conceptual networks about problem solving in your head and using procedures is about understanding how to execute um, algorithms. And, and both of these have a place, I should say, for sure. The pr- problem is especially in the American education system, we end up so heavily focused on using procedures that the kids don't get making connections knowledge. And that means in using procedures knowledge is great until you have to solve problems that you haven't seen or until you have to solve problems in an order you don't expect, right? So where where suddenly you can't say, oh, we're getting the problem from, you know, I know the problem type because this is the thing that we're studying this week, essentially. So, so for when, example, when you move from straight numbers equations in algebra to word problems the dreaded word problem (laughs) exactly and um there's a really cool study that didn't come out in time for the book but that i want to kind of tell you about because i know you're you're sort of interested in the quantifying impact to the extent it's possible and one of the techniques i i talk about in that chapter is called interleaving and essentially what this means so block I'll, I'll give it its sort of opposite first. Blocked practice means you give kids a type of prob- problem type A, 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 then problem type B, 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 C, 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 and so on. And and when you do that, they only need using procedures knowledge. And so they'll look like they're making progress very quickly. Interleave practice is where they get the problem types at random. So it could be like A, C, C, B, D, all over the place. And so they can't rely just on using procedures knowledge. They have to try to identify the structure of the problem before matching a solution to it. So they have to try to conceptually identify what's the deeper structure of the problem. And this study that just came out randomized seventh grade classrooms to either blocked practice or interleaved practice. And 
when test time, so and the, the the group that gets interleave practice, you know, as usually the case that they will feel more frustrated, they will make less initial progress, they will rate their teacher lower. Um, and then when the test came around in this study, the groups that were randomized to interleave practice blew the other groups away. The effect size was the largest I've ever seen in an education study. It was it was like 0.83 standard deviations, I think. Oof. So. It, it, it was like taking a kid from the 50th percentile and moving them to the 80th percentile. Obviously, I'm picking that part of the curve because it would seem less impressive if I picked like the top of the curve. But, um, you know, and, and, and a very rigorous study. And that kind of interleaving falls under this category of desirable difficulties where you, you slow – you do something that causes the learner to be slowed down and more frustrated but that does not allow them to simply execute procedures – and forces them to try to connect the structure of the problem to to a concept about problem solving that they know. Um, but again, we're not wired so well to understand that works because it slows down our initial learning. It feels more frustrating. Um, you know, parents often undermine it by showing their kids faster ways to do their homework. And it often leads to the students rating their teacher worse. Uh, so... So I think it's important to recognize that science because if we only go with our intuition, we're not going to use the best tools available for learning. Yeah, I was really fascinated by this particular section of the book because it really kind of emphasized how difficult it is to teach connections. And that's not just because um, it's frustrating <laughs> to teach the kids connections, but because it's frustrating, the kids will find hacks. <laughs> and yeah. those hacks are procedures. <laughs> yeah, and that happened in every country, by the way. So, like these, the the cognitive psychologists who were studying this took video of a huge number of classrooms around the world, and a lot of times, uh, teachers would pose questions as making connections problems where you had to draw together different concepts uh, to attack the problem and couldn't just execute an algorithm. But the the students were very clever and could often ask questions in a way where the teacher would basically give them enough hints until it became a using procedures problem. And the United States was the worst offender on that count where teachers did pose making connections problems, but then they would allow the students to basically solicit hints until it became a using procedures problem. And so that's, that's not good. And does this mean, you know, that the, the making connections, you know, has these links to generalization, you know, being able to mm -hmm. kind of see broad concepts, does this mean these issues with making connections versus using procedures? Does this mean that it's hard to teach range? How would you teach range? I, I think it does mean, you know, I think the reason why I focused on desirable difficulties in that chapter is that it, it is, it is difficult. Uh, if you want to give people, so this, this, the classic research finding can be summarized as breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. So transfer, I think, is a major part of range. And what transfer means to psychologists is there is your ability to take knowledge and skills and transfer it to, to problems or situations that you have not exactly seen before. And what predicts your ability to do that is how broad your training was in the first place. You know, the diversity of situations you faced. And that when you when you have that diversity, it slows down initial learning. There's there's no question about it. All of those, the techniques in that chapter I mentioned. This is a very small number of so-called learning hacks or whatever you want to call them. That are actually so. There's a million out in the world, you know, on LinkedIn and Facebook. But there's a very small number that are rigorously supported by cognitive psychology. And I think I get about, you know, at least half of them into that chapter. And every single one of them slows down learning. 
and every single one of them can easily be circumvented and typically will be when someone's using their, you know, you know, just their intuition. And so I think this, one of the themes of the book is that the things that you can do to cause the most rapid short-term progress often undermine long-term development. And, but we fall into that anyway, because we're usually focused on, on short-term progress. So, um, my hope is that, you know, maybe, maybe the book, it will have a small influence on making some people think a little differently about that. That was actually one of the things that I kind of thought about, um, when I was reading your book, it was a tie in that, um, I don't, I, you didn't really address in the book itself, but I wondered if part of the reason we promote this early specialization is because our society is so obsessed with early achievement at very early ages. I'm thinking of like the 30 under 30 lists and how everyone mm-hmm. wants to hear about the latest teen wonder kind who's going to save the world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you I, think there's a link yeah. there between our obsession with, you know, young geniuses and the glorying in specialization? Definitely, because we assume that they're on a trajectory, right? Which they very clearly are not in most cases. Um, you know, very frequently child prodigies do not grow up to adult eminence, but I think we perceive them as being on a linear trajectory. Um, and so we assume that they, that they will be that great, but it's, it's typically not the case. And, and again, to go back to this, the study I mentioned where the average age of a successful startup founder is 45 and a half. Um, why don't we have the, like, you know, 45 over 45 who started at 45 list or something like that? Uh, but we well, don't, it doesn't really fit well in a headline. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's not as, it's not as, it's not as sexy, but yeah, I think we're, again, if you, you mentioned you were going to link the, either the debate or the panel or both that I did with Gladwell. And I remember we were talking about this obsession with precocity and he said, well, you know, prodigy videos are like human cat videos. And, and I totally agree. And this is an area where sports is a great analogy because, there, I don't think there's any domain that even close to has as, as many videos on YouTube and all these things of like highlight reels of children. And when I see a highlight reel of a child athlete, I'm pretty sure I'm seeing someone who is at their peak and is not going to be uh, that good as an adult. And we see that in like the best, you know, in youth national teams, there's like basically nobody ends up on the senior national team. So that's actually not the stuff you want to be. The way to develop the best 10 year old is not the way to develop the best 20 year old. Uh, except in a very rare set of domains. And so I, I think I think we just mistake a cross-section for trajectory. Well, I love that you're promoting the glory of range. Obviously, I'm someone who has a lot of range, and so this made mm-hmm. me feel very smart. Um, <laughs> but Yay, confirmation bias. <laughs> um, but it also seems that many of the people who take true advantage of their range in this book still do require specialists and their knowledge to do it. So is there kind of a balance to be had between the specialists and the generalists? You know, should the should frog and toad be friends? <laughs> totally, totally. And speaking of frog, I mean, the way the way that I think about this and, and why I quoted him on it was the, you know, the eminent physicist and mathematician Freeman Dyson um, gave a speech where he said, to have a healthy ecosystem, we need both birds and frogs. The frogs are down in the mud seeing the the granular details. The birds are up above. They don't see those details, but they integrate the the broader knowledge of the specialists. And he said, we need them both. 
for a healthy ecosystem. The problem is we're telling everyone to be frogs. And that makes us both lose a view of the bigger picture and also very inflexible when things change. And, and I think he conceived it exactly perfectly. I think we need the birds and the frogs. We just put all the value on the frogs, essentially. Well, David, this has been wonderful. And I only wish we had more time. Thank you for being here and for making me feel a little bit better about <laughs> my too many hobbies. <laughs> my pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about David Epstein and his new book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World, we've linked to more information about the book at scienceforthepeople.ca. There's other stuff on that site, too, like our social media pages and where you can subscribe, which you should totally do. We would love that. And if you're really feeling generous, kick us a few dollars at our Patreon page. Help support the dedicated and talented people who keep the show going. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 